This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. When Leonard Abbas sold a majority stake in Miami-based City National Bank last fall, he did something very unusual. He took $60 million of that money and gave it out as bonuses to 399 current bank employees and 72 former employees. He did it without calling in a public relations firm or the media. He didn't blog about it. And while he was mentioned in President Obama's inauguration speech and was ABC News Person of the Week, these things were not done at his instigation. In fact, he wasn't even on site when the money was given out. He decided to share the wealth, he said, as a way to reward the people who had helped make the bank successful. We asked Leonard Abbas, who remains chairman and CEO of the bank, to talk about the motivation behind his gift and to share his views on leadership and the current economic crisis. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. To begin with, can you explain in a little more depth exactly why you decided to distribute $60 million to your employees when you could have just as easily given that money to a charity of your choice or some other nonprofit group? Well, um, it wasn't so much that I just suddenly decided to do that. I, I, I knew I was going to do that for a very long time. I, I've known that probably more than 20 years. I, uh, I had confided that to my wife and to a president who had been with us uh, and chief operating officer. And I just never thought that the success of the bank had just was re- – I was just solely responsible for that. Um, I owned the bank. I enjoyed the profits, the dividends, and I always realized that there were 400-plus people doing the work, making it successful, and the profits going in one direction. We we certainly compensated very well. Uh, We were in the top 25 uh, banks in the country in compensation per employee, but we were also in in the top 15 in the country in revenue per employee. And so I, I felt that, particularly based on longevity, that these people were owners. They acted like owners. They worked like owners. They, they, uh, they felt a strong ownership in the bank, and I wanted to acknowledge that. We had had uh, excellent compensation, so unlike many companies, we didn't just pay it out in huge ways to, to the top people, but I had a formula based on how long people had been there, and uh, no one really knows that formula but me, but but the longer you were there, the more money you got. In, in many companies, the people who stay the longest are uh, closer to the bottom of the compensation scale. People near the top tend to move around a lot more. And so it, it felt right. Um, I was concerned that they had not built up adequate pensions. So some of them had invested their 401ks in the stock market. I, I knew it had been difficult over the years to save. And, and I thought they were entitled to the same sign of kind of security that I would get. So people near the bottom of the company in compensation, but with longevity, got as much as nine years uh, of compensation. And then people at the top didn't get so many years. Well, you know, I was struck when I was reading about this gift by how incredibly long some of these people have worked at the company. I think there were 39 years, 43 years, 51 years. How do you explain that longevity at a time when many employees expect to stay no more than three to five years at a job before they take off? 
Well, I, I do think that's more today that people have that expectation. I think many people that entered the workplace uh, 40, 50 years ago did hope to stay at one place, build up a retirement and, and retire there. But o- over the years, I, I never really um, liked separation uh, unless I instigated it. Uh, and, and so I would always encourage people to stay. I would uh, be very open to what they wanted. Uh, we never would force people in, into jobs they didn't want. If, if they wanted something else, we'd do our best to put them there, to train them. Often we would have to ask people to stay with what they did and, and try to treat them fairly for doing that. But we provided, I think, an atmosphere of, of caring. We, we were always there. I know my employees. I know their names. Uh, I, I know their spouses' names, their parents, their children. We have multiple generations there, uh, multiple members of families, people who have met at work and, and married, and then their children have come to work there. So, so we always tried to have a, a family atmosphere. We, we attend each other's uh, events, uh, birthdays, weddings, and funerals. And in hardship, we try to take care of each other. So I, I think we had an, an atmosphere that for people was comfortable and uh, they, they felt welcome, so they stayed. While your gift is extraordinary under any circumstances, uh, it's, it's especially noteworthy now uh, given the state of the economy and the fact that hundreds of thousands of people are being dumped from organizations when they, where they've worked in some cases for decades. Did the economic crisis motivate your gift in any way? I know you said you'd already always planned to do this, but did the crisis kind of... Uh, sort of up- update your timeline? No, it, it just made it um, more meaningful and, and feel better and uh, made me think harder about the amount. I'm sure you're not interested in criticizing any of your peers at the CEO level, but in broad terms, do you think that top executives frequently say that their employees are their most valuable asset, but then act in ways that don't back that up? For instance, the layoffs continue by the thousands, yet Many executives are giving up their salaries and perks and and bonuses only when they're exposed to the public. One of the nice things about being private and owning your own company is you get to write your own letters in your annual reports. And that's something I've always enjoyed taking a lot of time and doing. So I also like to read other people's annual reports, uh, especially banks. And I actually do read the letters often thinking that some public relations firm wrote them, uh, I write my own. So several years ago, I wrote an annual report, and it, and it said, it started off and it said, I like reading annual reports, and they're all the same. And the CEO chairman starts off with all the statistics and the performance, and then consistently, and if you look this up, you'll see I'm right, in the last paragraph, they say, and last but not least, we wish to thank our loyal employees, our directors, and our shareholders without them. So I wrote about this, and I said, why does it last? And I'm going to start my letter off thanking my employees. And then the entire letter was about the employees. And yes, I do believe in many companies, especially larger ones, that it's perfunctory. I I think that the senior management is removed from the day-to-day people, uh, has lost touch with what goes on. I, I think they all have lunch together, dinner together, live in the same neighborhoods, uh, come to work and and flip out something nice to somebody as they pass by them. But I I think that at the end of the day, it's headcount. And I think at the end of the day, um, often uh, the employees are the ones, especially the ones who have worked very hard, are the ones who suffer. And it, it 
I have always said, we've never had a layoff, um, and we've paid a bonus to every employee every year. We've never raised the cost of insurance. We, we, today, the employee's cost is the same as it was 20 years ago when it was 80%. Today, it's 20%. But I've always said, and I, and I tell young CEOs, that before you cut anybody's compensation, before you fire anybody for economic reasons, you deal with yourself. Your perks go, your bonus goes, your salary goes. And I am very surprised when I see some of the huge amounts of money that goes to the people at the top as there are massive layoffs, and especially as they accept government money. What do you think that's going to change? I I think that there's a change happening right now in in America, in corporate America, and I hope it's sustainable. I, I have my doubts that when the economy uh, takes off again that we won't return to the old ways. And, and I, I, I've often said that we have to we have to systemically change corporate America and the way it operates. It's not enough to go in there and bail it out and save industries. And I think some of these industries should not be saved or where the businesses in them that are being saved. I, I'm not in favor of that. I'm in favor of putting people back to work. But, but I, I, I think that somehow this uh, current uh, situation uh, has to be used uh, for fundamental change in the way corporations behave. Okay. You, you have an undergraduate degree from Wharton. Do you think that, I'll call them ethical issues, including how you treat employees, how you compensate yourself, uh, do you think that those things can be taught in school, or are they learned at an earlier age, or are they learned in the home, or you know, where do we get our ethics? I, th- I think we get them at home. I, I think we get them at the dinner table. I think we get them in the community. I, I think we get them uh, at church or temple or, or wherever we go for spiritual guidance. And, and I think they can be talked about in the schools. I, I think it, it must be. And I think it's a combination of all of the above. But I, I've never really felt that schools are responsible for teaching ethics or morality. I, I think they're responsible for enforcing it. But I think it has to be learned at home and in the community. Just to recap, your father started City National in 1946, then sold it to an investment group, which sold it to a Colombian businessman. You eventually bought the bank back in 1985. Under your leadership, the bank's assets increased from about $400 million to $2.75 billion. You then sold a majority stake to the Spanish bank Caja Madrid for $927 million, retaining a minority share and also the titles of CEO and chairman of the board. But going back to the time your father owned the bank, I understand that you started out in the company's printing department, kind of got a grassroots education into how a bank runs. So, you know, this experience of working in the trenches, did that affect your view of the rank-and-file employee and how he or she can really add to the growth uh, of a business, not just not just your business, but any business? Uh, the answer is yes. And one short story, uh, there were separate banks back then. We didn't have branch banking. I worked in the print shop. I was 14, a uh, summer job. And, and I, sometimes I worked after school. My father had grown up in the Depression and was pretty strong about his kids working. Uh, I, I actually used to go to the bank when I was six and play with the coin counting machine. <laughs> when I first took some coins, I found out I had to put them back. But <laughs> but the um, there was a young lady not much older than me working when I was 14. She was the secretary to the president. Now, she's with us today. She, she's been there 49 years. She's a um, has a high title first vice president um, and, and is a very important person in the company. But I would watch the president 
send her across the street to buy his cigarettes. And I also watched him have one of the maintenance men shine his shoes every day and somebody else park his car. And it bothered me. It, it, it really offended me. I just didn't think it was right. And so I, of course, I was 14 and worked there every summer. I spent my time with the people at the bottom. Uh, the lady who accompanied me to the president's State of the Union speech uh, was my boss in the print shop. She, she's been at the bank uh, 51 years. And today she's a safe deposit custodian. Um, and we're, we're friends. You know, it, uh, um, I just felt everybody uh, should be treated with equal dignity no matter what their job is. So rather than aspire to a position where you could get people to get your cigarettes and your dry cleaning, you in fact found it to be quite a turnoff. Uh, terrible. And I, I find when I ask somebody for a cup of coffee, I, I, I apologize. It's just automatic. I just, I'm sorry to ask you, but I know you're going that way. Uh, I've read that you're a strong environmentalist. And in fact, that you and your family have endowed the Leonard and Jane Abbas Center for Ecosystem Science and Policy at the University of Miami. And you founded the Abbas Floating Research Station in the Brazilian Amazon, among other contributions. But I'm wondering... What does it mean these days to be an environmentalist when it's such a loaded term and there's so many different opinions as to what, what this globe needs to sustain itself? Well, I think we're rapidly approaching where every thinking person is an environmentalist. Um, but, but, of course, we've been interested in this forever. We, we even grow our own food and uh, live in many interesting ways and things that we do. But, but I think at, at, at the end of the day, it, it just means that you're on the side of being part of the solution and not part of the problem. And, and it's being aware. And, you know, everybody can contribute just in the way they live. And then others have other resources to contribute. But I, I, I think we're, we're pretty close to If we're not an environmentalist, we probably want to live on another planet. Uh, here's an easy question. From your perspective, what caused today's financial crisis, and, and when will it be over? I, uh, I got a D in money and banking when I was here at Wharton, uh, and at the time, Citibank was changing the way of thinking to liability management from in banking from managing your assets. In the old days, you would gather deposits in the community and then reinvest them through loans to help businesses and grow based on your capital and your ability to get deposits. Citibank came out and they said, look, you need to leverage your capital. There are other forms of, of capital, which I call debt. I learned they were debt today, they're capital. But they said, you need to manage your liabilities because assets are easy to get. You, you can make loans, you can buy securities. Uh, assets are simple. It's funding them that's hard. So rather than go out in the community to get people savings, you can manage your liabilities by borrowing money from the Federal Reserve, the Home Loan Bank. So that was the beginning of really leveraging up in the financial industry. There wasn't much leverage before that. I got a D because Wharton was teaching that at the time. It was the theory of the day. I'd grown up with a father who was livid about it, who, who just said, no, you manage your assets. So I wrote a paper saying this is all wrong and didn't have a teacher that appreciated dissent um, and didn't want to see me again, so he didn't fail me. So I, I think some of the roots go even back that far where we, we started uh, coming up with the concept of leverage. You then take that forward, you have your liability management, you, you can fund almost any asset. You get a, a new class of people coming out, frankly, of places like Wharton, uh, who are, are very driven and very driven about compensation. And you come up with um, 
new asset products because the ability to leverage your capital, the ability to fund the acquisition of assets becomes almost unlimited. So now, what are we going to do? There, there are so many hardware stores to lend money to. There's so many people to give mortgages. We need new things. So we had people invent, literally I think invent is the right word, um, complex assets of long-term unpredictable nature, not well understood except for by computers perhaps who didn't understand them. And then we compensated them for their production and the sale of these instruments. And, and to me, that whole process of, of, of unlimited funding, um, extreme leverage, and then a shortage of financial product along with paying huge sums of money to bright people to invent more and more product that could be sold and allegedly risk spread, I, I think brought the house of cards down. And I, I think we have to look at this. You know, I, I always say, I'll give someone a bonus for making a loan after they collect it. We don't give bonuses. I, I have a friend who's an anesthesiologist. I had surgery, and I was going in. I said, how are you going to put me to sleep? And he said, anybody can put you to sleep. I'm going to wake you up. You're paying me to wake you up. Well, we need to pay these people to collect. And, and, and so I think the compensation uh, system ha has been terribly skewed. I, I, when people rant and rave about it's the bonuses that cause this, they might not even know what they're talking about because they're just enraged. But in a sense, they're right. Um, and so to me, it's, it's excess leverage, unlimited funding, and then uh, compensation for coming up with new product. And when do you think we'll see the light at the end of the tunnel? I, I, I think we're in trouble for quite a while. Um, you, you know, there's many measures. Uh, perhaps the stock market is coming back. I'm not sure. But, but I think that the financial system is totally broken. And I think that... Um, Propping it up with huge sums of money is not going to solve the problem. We are doomed to repeat this again. I, I, I think that it's going to take um, a long time to get this healthy again. Now, now when I say that, that doesn't mean we're not going to have a boom economy again, you know, down the road, maybe sooner. I don't think we will, but we might. But it's just going to bust again, and maybe even worse than this. Uh, we have to fundamentally re-engineer our, our worldwide financial system. That's going to take a lot of time. In your opinion, what are the three most important attributes of leadership? Oh, boy. I can think of many important attributes, but, but I, I think that leaders have to lead by example. Um, I, I think that's extremely important uh, that they do that. I, I think the leaders, as part of that example, have to have um, a clear moral compass, clear ethics. Uh, uh, leaders don't lie. Leaders don't cheat. Leaders don't misdirect. Uh, I, I think that uh, true leaders leave their egos somewhere where no one can see it. Uh, I think you have to have a certain amount of ego to get there, but, but I think you got to keep it in check. Um, I think that they respect people, they, they, they respect communities, and I, I think, to me, leadership really is leading by example, motivating people, and, and being human. Uh, I, I think actually just being real and talking to people. Listen, uh, leaders listen. Leaders listen well, and, and they respond well. Uh, you said you've answered this in some respects already, but I was so taken with your quote that I'm going to repeat it here. 
You said on ABC News in referring to your gift, quote, I prefer to live in a world where this is ordinary, end quote. How likely is this to happen? Oh, it's, it's, it's a question of human nature, you know. Maybe, maybe it'll spread. I, I, I Certainly, if you look at the mail I've gotten, you, you, you would think that it will in, in, in the blogs. Um, it, it's really... That's a hard one to answer, but I, I think there's a possibility for it. Um, but no, I'm not terribly hopeful. Well, uh, maybe we'll talk again in 10 years and there will have been some change for the good. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.